All right, hello and welcome back to Between the Liars with Austin. Hey, everybody. Joshua. How's it going there? Marcelo. Hey, everyone. And Ryan. Uh, and today we're going to go ahead and expand on our last session, which was the human infrastructure bill, which is supposed to be on the floor for debate in the Senate as we speak. So theoretically, uh, we know how slow things are and how hesitant people are to jump on things and how functional our government is. But if, you, if you're if you interested in how this got on the floor, how they're trying to pass the votes with a bare majority through the budget reconciliation, go check out our last episode. That's going to be the one that gives the full breakdown on procedures where we debate that. Today, and I assume assume for the next couple of episodes, we're going to take each of the pieces of the bill that they've kind of cobbled together in the human infrastructure bill and debate them uh, one at a time. Maybe we'll get to a few in each episode. So let's go ahead and review the human infrastructure bill and the infrastructure bill kind of used interchangeably in the language in the Senate and the House. It deals with innovation, buildings, transportation, utilities, and in-home care. And this has been expanded through the human infrastructure bill, which would include things like universal pre-K. It would include things like adding on uh, the dental and vision to the current Affordable Care Act, aka the Obamacare Act. It would also include things like certain tax subsidies for uh, those who are at the poverty line or who are in single parent homes with multiple children, things like that. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and start with initial thoughts from the others, and then we'll break down piece by piece. I think a lot of what's being addressed in human infrastructure is child rearing. Like there's several components of the bill that are directly targeting the difficulties that come around, you know, raising a child. Universal pre-K is part of that. Child care is extraordinarily expensive, but it's also super useful for our economy. If you think about the specialization of labor, it's much better for us to have a dedicated group of young child carers so we can get to our other employees back to work. You don't need your accountants and your managers staying home taking care of children when we have child care professionals. And that's a lot of the argument behind the K through 12 system anyways, is we wanted, a, you know, a way to take care of our young and educate them, but also, you know, allow their parents to go to work. Pre-K is part of that as well. It helps get the parents back to work sooner. Um, I think this is especially kind of a twofold thing, given that America has pretty much no parental leave besides like family medical leave. And even then that's extraordinarily limited to other developed uh, nations and their maternal and, you know, we don't even have paternal leave. A lot of other countries do. So there's a lot of government push to make having children and raising families easier. But a lot of people just don't have the financial situation in their mid-20s, you know, and we're not getting financially stable even until our 30s to have children. It seems like with a lot of these larger bills, there tends to be some vagaries that go in with the name. I don't know. My first thought when I heard human infrastructure was, well, what the heck does that even mean? Because it seemed to be tacked onto the end of, you know, a, a broader infrastructure bill, um, roads, pipelines, airports, those sorts of things, physical things, actual infrastructure type stuff. Um, but like Josh described, it sounds like there's a lot of, well, he you know mentioned that it seems that childcare seems to be a large part of this part of the bill. It's being labeled as human infrastructure. I just think it'd be more helpful for everyone involved if they were a little bit more forthcoming with the naming instead of making up this or this somewhat esoteric category of human infrastructure, maybe call it something a little bit more directly what it is and not tack it onto the end of an infrastructure bill designed to get our roads in shape and everything else. I don't know. It just seems like uh, sliding something in under the door. Now, whether or not that's a bad thing or not, that's definitely not the question that I'm bringing up. Just seems like some of the naming going into a lot of the bills coming out these days isn't quite in line with what they're trying to get done. Doesn't seem like it's it would be um, in the interest of the public to have something slid in under a different name than what they'd expect. Yep, and I, I, I mean, I guess the public really would know what's in this bill because of how long it is, but 
Yeah, it's I definitely what, think they're trying to sell the name human structure. Um, it, it's it's capitalist branding because you aren't going to get a childcare bill through on the heartstrings of people um, because half of the Senate and House does not care about heartstring bills. So then how do you get them to think and do things around, you know, taking care of children's? Well, you bill it as infrastructure. And that seems weird, but then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what? is infrastructure. Uh, Roads are infrastructure. Well, what do roads do? Well, they help us get around. They make sure people, they can get to jobs. They make sure we can transport goods around. Roads make the economy happen. What do dams do? They supply power. Well, on top of needing humans to orchestrate all of those jobs and make sure they happen, there are ways to spend money as a government to better optimize your workers. Uh, And that's why, you know, I talked about, you know, childcare, a big part of it's to get people back to work. Um, um, and not being home with the kids and let, you know, specialized childcare do it because that on paper should produce a higher GDP. Universal pre-K has ne- positive uh, impacts on a child's education career and how well they perform in their classes. Does that matter as much to people as, hey, this bill is going to be better for our economy? What does it do for the kids? It doesn't matter. It's going to be better for our economy. And so I really do think they're almost trying to appeal to the moderate and the conservative with this naming saying, all right, listen, it's, it's not about the kids. It's about getting the economy going. We just need to spend this money this way because it's better for the economy. So last week I talked a lot about how I had a problem with this misuse of the reconciliation, tacking this on, and then kind of using these verbal semantics and different words to try to get us from, okay, we're talking about infrastructure, therefore what, like you just mentioned, Josh, ties to infrastructure even somewhat loosely, therefore can be tied to the economy. Well, we're all infrastructure, therefore this should also be passed and it's not being passed correctly. What I want to talk about this week for myself um, and where I kind of want to direct this conversation is towards how is this actually being used? Is it being used well? And unfortunately, I don't really see our representatives in the House or the Senate debating this. They certainly haven't read it. And they're passing something that's going to be quite quite hefty in the price tag. So we're not actually seeing people who are sponsoring this bill having to stand up and say, here is the direct connection between what we're passing and how it's going to improve the economy. In in essence, this bill is a reiteration of LBJ, Linda B. Johnson's previous package, which would have included the war on poverty, right? Such and such thing is a human right. Therefore, we need to make sure that these people have access to it. We want to give them a hand up. We want to help them get on their feet. But we're not actually seeing poverty be eradicated. We've spent nearly or over $22 trillion on the war on poverty, and we still have this, which is how we're justifying passing this bill. My big bone to pick with this particular legislation is that the people sponsoring it are not showing where the connection is between where they're allocating funding and how they're going to see the improvements. They just kind of get to say that it's going to happen. And I think evidence shows that it won't. Well, I think the evidence is a little out because America's never really had a big anti-poverty bill. We've had a couple presidents try to do a push. We saw FDR's tentative uh, bill of economics rights, which he was uh, trying to, he was in the process of negotiating and getting drafted into le- legislation when he died. Um, and so after the, the New Deal, we didn't get that economic bill of rights. And part of FDR's plan back then was going to be to nationalize our healthcare system. That was what he saw as something critical going into 
to the Cold War as having readily act accessible medicine for all of our people because he saw it as a readiness thing of how do I make sure if I have to go to total war with the Soviet Union, um, I need to make sure I have a fighting position population and that means they're healthy. And so we didn't get that. And then FDR came in, you know, or not FDR, but as you said, um, LBJ came in with his warrant on poverty and he didn't really get that bill much anywhere either. I mean, he was a very successful in some parts of his legislative history, but we never saw completion of that. And part of that's because like MLK died and his follow-up campaign to his race civil rights work was beginning what he called the poor people's campaign. And we haven't had a bill that or even a group of bills like this one is that really goes in and targets people directly. Like when we talk about, well, okay, how do we make lives better for people? And our answer is tax cut to corporations. And we go, well, no one's getting any, you know, uh, the poor aren't getting any richer. The rich still are. Okay, that clearly doesn't work. So our government can choose to spend its money in two places, on the people who already have money and the people who don't have money. And it seems if we do want to bring an effective solution, we need to target the people in direct need of aid rather than hoping um, that employers will become more generous with a better tax bill. I really couldn't agree more. I feel like when you are looking at these benefits and how they directly affect people, you know, we say we all agree that we want the people to be those, the vulnerable ones to be directly benefited. And I don't think there's a better way to do that than to just treat them directly instead of looking at other possible ways and seeing hopefully that the benefits will trigger go down in a way, obviously, uh, it's better to just go ahead and, and do it. And I know this is outside of the scope of uh, this whole perspective, but unemployment was a similar way, right? If you give people money for unemployment while they're in the middle of a global pandemic, then they will not starve. I don't feel like it's sort of the question to say that if we send these benefits, people will be better off. See, I think that it's a little off to say that we either target people who do or don't have money because the people who do have money, they're only getting help, if you want to call it that, through tax cuts so that they can actually continue to further businesses, which generates the revenue, which then presumably will be taxed. The money that LBJ was able to allocate, and I'll I'll give you that we don't have a collection of bills or like a specific iteration like this, but I don't think that the general idea not being passed already is false. The fact that we have $22 spent in different and various programs, both on a national and on a state level, would say that this has been and is being attempted. One case in point, California has declared that housing is a human right, hasn't done anything. They still have some of the highest homeless rates because the government is not actually capable of giving people the means. They can only declare that it is something that should be. Therefore, please pass this bill that we need to have X amount of spending dollars, which go towards other things. And like this bill is a great example of that. Like you have... $250 million allocated towards invasive plant species removal. You have $50 million targeting the strategic innovation for revenue collection, which means that these people are literally putting tax dollars towards an exploratory committee to see how can we tax people more? How about take the 50 million that you already have and put it towards actually helping these people? I'm going to agree with you, Josh, and uh, say that these people, I, I would like to see their quality of life improved. However, the way that this bill are articulates that and executes that is incapable of actually doing that in the same way that the $22 trillion we've thrown towards these various programs hasn't actually made these people self-sustainable or able to improve themselves without the dependency of the government in the same way that they had projected they would before they threw the money at these programs. The same thing can be said about roads. 
that none of our businesses could happen without our, our government aid um, from the roads and therefore we're all dependent upon them and we're all not going to do anything because we depend on the government for roads. But that's observably false. Even though the government gives aids, people still do things. We all depend on the government. Um, we depend on the government to keep us safe. We think it keeps us safe from international threats. We think our police keep us safe from domestic threats. We depend on the government. So I always find that something like really weird because even the most pull yourself up by the bootstraps red states actually receive the most federal aid compared to California. On a per citizen basis, Tennessee eats up more funding than California does. The federal government has to spend more money on citizens in Tennessee to help them get by than they do Californian residents. And that's incredible. And that's almost consistently true for every red and blue state. Red states are more expensive for our federal government because they have less programs um, to care for their own citizens. And so their own citizens depend up on the federal government more and more, even though they do their local governments. Yeah, people depend on the government and we can ostrich it and put our heads in the sand and act like they're not real. Or we can try to use money. Like, you know, we you say, you know, we spent $22 trillion on um, poverty, but I'll tell you, we, we spend a lot more than that. We spend over $2 trillion a year on economic programs here in the United States, whether that's Social Security or Medicare and Medicaid. Those two alone can rack up a $2 trillion price tag in one year. So in 10 years, we, we could hit that, you know, $20 trillion spending mark of what we're doing on poverty. But we're working with a massive amount of people. Like even the moment you say, we're going to spend $10,000 of benefits on every citizen, roughly. Okay. There's 33 million of us. We're always going to be talking about an insane amount of money. So my response then would be that I don't have a problem with the spending of the money inherently at face value. So I don't mind if the government is spending money in areas that can actually help these people. However, historically, we don't see that being the case. So for example, if the government throws money and subsidizes a business that employs people, those people have jobs, they get paid. That doesn't automatically mean that they're going to move from one tax bracket to the next immediately, but it does mean that those people are employed. Therefore, that is a good use of the taxpayer dollars because it directly impacts more than just the corporation, more than just the CEOs. When we're just tossing money, like uh, like you mentioned earlier, the universal basic income or something like that, we're not actually seeing the same return on that. And with the amount of taxes that are collected and where they're being spent, to me, that's the big issue. I, it's not that I have a problem with people who are in poverty being assisted or in some way, people or corporations on any level being assisted. I have a problem with the way that it's assisted and the promise that is then under delivered because of the misallocation of those funds. I think, yes, while both actions are benefiting people in one way or another, I do believe that even though uh, you're looking at these as different ways of spending the money or investing uh, the, go uh, the government um, expenses, I would say that helping the people who need it the most as then like give them the direct benefits, again, I've said it before, is, I believe, the way to go. Um, even from an optics perspective, I think more people would agree that giving people money is preferable than giving people money who don't obviously need it. Well, let's say, well, I'm going to give for here's my first response that over the years and for most of the time and even currently sitting with Joe Biden, we haven't really wanted a government. We haven't had a government that wanted to actually help people. Um, we've had a government that's wanted to pass bills and budgets and things that look like they're going to help people and then line the corporation's pockets um, that are their benefactors. Whether it was Joe Lieberman who blocked the public option from the Affordable Care Act because his 
his wife uh, as a healthcare executive. And so he alone, a lone Democratic senator, shot down the public option from Obamacare that would have passed when the Affordable Health Care Act originally came through. But Joe Lieberman, because his wife was a healthcare executive, was opposed to it and refused to allow our government to have a public option because it was going to hurt his family's personal financial interests. Our government does more for corporations than it does for our citizens. When you think about how much you're paying in taxes, the amount of tax money that comes out of you that goes to help other poor people is like 20%. And 80% of your tax money is going to be used to effectively help corporations write off their taxes and tax breaks that they carve out for them. So I'm going to say the fact that we now at least are coming around and having things like human infrastructure and having a better uh, part of our politics that is more focused on the human concern than there are corporations concerns, we can start seeing bills that will work better. And even the odder parts of the bill, like, you know, that um, however much money was going towards that invasive uh, plant species removal, that could not only be critical for like several ecological reasons, um, but at the same time, FDR paid people to dig ditches and fill them in because he needed to, they needed to, and he needed to get, you know, and keep the country going and have it moving forward. And I think that's always something that we have to keep in mind of as our government does things. There's like long-term benefits to it, and especially that invasive plant species thing. That may not seem like um, a small thing, but that could actually be incredibly impactful in the next 30, 40 years of our ability to maintain our natural ecosystems and preserve our wildlife here in America. Combating invasive species will help keep our national parks beautiful and our wildlife unique. I am absolutely for steps being taken toward reducing invasive species. It's a problem. I think there's some problems for local ecosystems. Don't think that should be done from the federal government level, because what do they know about the locales of Tennessee? What do they know about the locales of like North Dakota, like where Ryan's from? I think that should be state funded or state handled rather, because uh, it's very local. The thing that I don't necessarily agree with, though, is paying people to dig ditches and fill them in. I think that's honestly a perfect example of the amount of bloat that comes with a lot of these federal government programs. I don't know if FDR like directly paid them. I'm not sure, but this is a really good example of the fact that if you give the government more money, they're going to expand. They're going to create more bureaucracy that really doesn't do anything effective. They're going to waste money. Now, if you're going to advocate for more tax dollars to be taken out of the hands of individuals for each hand that that passes through, for each part of the bloated government, particularly the federal government bureaucracy that passes through, the more money is going to be skimmed off the top. And not necessarily in like an illegal laundering kind of way, but just as the nature of bureaucracy. You have more people employed in these positions that don't necessarily need to exist. You have people that aren't doing anything productive for the country in some cases, not all cases, some cases, and you're going to have more money taken out that could be used to actually help the people that you want to help. I think we're all on the same page. There are some people that are down on their luck or that life has gotten to them that do need to be helped. I don't think anyone's advocating there should be no social safety net, but I do think it needs to be more of a trampoline than a net because all it's doing right now is catching people and keeping them in those positions. I don't think expanding it to the point where they can get, you know, people can get comfortable to the point of not wanting to improve their own situation is going to help anybody out. I think that's only going to cause us more problems. And honestly, we're seeing that a lot today with a lot of what's going on with our economy at the moment with people not wanting to return to work because of extremely lucrative unemployment benefits. Like I've heard stories of people that are making more throughout the pandemic unemployment system than I made as an essential worker through the pandemic. That's inexcusable. You can't have an economy with those sorts of incentives. It's perverse. It's not right.
I don't know. There's always like lots of par- parts of it. And I think that's why we need to focus direct target to aid to people. Because if you tell the senators, okay, we need you all to come up with um, the 50 corporations that we're going to be giving money to that are best going to help the people, they're going to give them to their friends or give them to the companies that they're on the boards for. And that's why no one leaves um, Congress not being a millionaire. People go in not being a millionaire, but not a single person in the past 50 years has retired from Congress worth less than a million dollars despite more than 30% of them going into Congress worth less than a million dollars. There's the true secret of it all. (laughs) I think we're in agreement there. And Austin- So that's why I think we need direct aid to individuals because we're trusting the super rich people who are able to run and finance their campaigns and pay off political buddies to get in the Republican party ticket and get high enough in so that you can be a prominent figure on the party and run for office. And then they go in there and then they are returning the favors to all of their benefactors who put them there. We lose the ability to help people when we don't just directly aid them. Well, um, that's it's changing too many hands. That's not unique to the Republican Party. That's just Congress well, yeah, and the Senate. Yeah, in it's, general. Yeah, it's unique mean, to it's unique to all of them. But that's the point of where we keep asking these same corrupt individuals to pass benefits to businesses that they get to pick to best help the American economy, and nothing keeps getting any better. Except they keep getting richer, and so do their business friends. So stop giving money to them and their business friends, and give it directly to the poor people. So Austin, this is a great lesson in spread debating from Josh. (laughs) Uh, So we've covered Obamacare. We've covered uh, transition of money. We've talked about subsidies. We've talked about trickle-down economics. It was a corruption critique. Corruption. So there's one big critique. Take take (laughs) your pick of whichever one of those you you think, you know, you've got something to address right away. Uh, and then we'll go from there. I guess you could go more fundamentally. My problem, if I mean, I'm totally with you, Josh, as far as um, there's a lot of lobbying issues in Congress. But my issue is a lot of those same morons pin this bill. <laughs> so I have to wonder with as big as this bill is, uh, if I'm if I read correctly, I believe it's 2,702 pages. There's not a chance any single one of them read every page. How much garbage did they sneak in with it? And that is the scariest thing for me. And with as big as this package is and how much money there is to it, just uh, how many of those lobbying organizations are going to be siphoning off, not just the top. It seems like they're siphoning throughout every portion of this. So, I mean, of course, this is a very systemic issue that goes a little deeper than we can address in one podcast. But to the core of it, I for a big systemic fix... I'm kind of one of those guys that's like, if you can't read it before you vote on it, you shouldn't be wasting our time with it. So I think we could all agree on that. And then also, I I mean, I think honestly, both chambers of Congress should be forced to read through the entirety of the bill from the floor before they vote on it. Just my 50 cents on that part of uh, the issue. On the invasive species things, the more that I thought about it, just complete aside, just an interesting point. In the 50s, a lot of central planning, like community planning sort of things, they had the bright idea to uh, clear fruit bearing trees from city planning and all that so that they wouldn't have to pick things up they wouldn't have to clean the streets. Less than a few decades later, they found out that pollen was one of the biggest causes of allergies. So they replaced a lot of fruit bearing trees with hybrid trees and male pollinator trees. So the reason that we have such terrible pollen seasons most these days is because the government decided to get rid of fruit bearing trees in town centers. So you can blame the government for a large portion of your allergy season issues. If they wanted to try to fix some of that with the infrastructure bill, I would be up for that. Um, Get rid of a lot of the, I think one of the things specifically mentioned is actually the Bradford pear, which is a worthless tree, hybrid tree, smells bad. Basically, the wind can knock it over. Absolutely worthless. But that is a government uh, problem that they should have not 
you know, that's honestly on them, the 50s and 60s, thinking they could fix things, um, thinking they could central plan everything out. And they got rid of a lot of natural um, species, trees that were, you know, native to their locations, doing their jobs, producing fruit, got rid of it because it was inconvenient. So I don't know if they could rectify that with part of the infrastructure bill, that'd be great. And I'll, I'll hop on the response to the idea of the direct payments or like even some concept of a universal basic income subsidizing those who fall below a specific poverty line. That should be what it targets if it's put into place. I, I would just hard and fast reject that. And the reason is because we don't actually see it being used well. Welfare, food stamps, things like that in some capacity have already been used to target through the, the general concept war on poverty. And there's another problem that I have with the way that this is counted. So for example, when they take a census and then they report that X amount of people are living below the poverty line. They don't account for the actual living conditions of the households. And from the census, it said that 80% of poor households have air conditioning. Nearly two thirds have cable or satellite television. Half have a personal computer. 40% have a widescreen HDTV. Three quarters own a car or truck. Nearly a third has two or more vehicles. 96% of poor parents state that their child or children were never hungry at any time during the year because they could not afford food. And then some 82% of poor adults reported that they were never hungry at any time in the prior year. I'm not saying that's a bad thing because that's a good thing. What I'm saying is that when the government takes a census of these things in order to justify a war on poverty or to, to allocate significant amounts of funds that have been taxed, they don't report them properly and then they don't allocate them properly. So I'm glad that there's such a high percentage and I would say make that better. But when you're trying to allocate funding through these bills and you're not even counting them correctly for who actually counts as po impoverished or below the poverty line, that is a fundamental problem leads to misallocation allocation of those funds. I'm not opposed to these individuals getting a higher quality of life or good things in their life. But if the government's going to actually pass these things and dip their hands in at the individual levels of divvying out things, I don't think that they have the means or even the vested, they have a vested interest in not taking care of the citizens because you create a crisis, you get more power, you continue to campaign on something even though they could potentially try to improve it, doesn't do a great job, they stay in power. It goes back to your uh, critique of the power structure, Josh, is yes, these people are absolutely motivated to keep themselves in power, which is why I also kind of find it a little ironic when you're like, okay, these people keep themselves in power, but let's give them the power to tax and assume that they're going to divvy it out better. Like, I feel like there's kind of a disconnect in the argument you made earlier between the government who we all agree is bad and the government who's somehow going to, same people, turn around and help these people. I, I, I'm kind of stuck on that dissonance there between yeah, those two okay. concepts. Uh, I can slice that up real fast. Sure. One of them is going to tax money at an exorbitant amount and give it to the corporation friends, back to them in tax benefits, tax cuts, and loopholes they write especially for them. And the other one is going to give it back out to uh, more citizens than they do corporations. And that's my follow through on that. It's basically of, yeah, the Republicans are going to line the bill with things for their friends. The Democrats are going to line things, through, uh, things for their friends and line their own pockets. One of them is willing to, though, give money to the public. And so I'll ride with it because, sure, um, there's going to be odd exceptions and insanities in this bill because they're in every bill. That's a non-unique criticism. And to break that down, people, I'm basically saying it doesn't matter because it's going to happen no matter what. And there's nothing any of us can do about it. So I'm going to pick the least <laughs> the least badly covered apple um, that I can find <laughs> um, out of the bunch. I was trying to do the bleep. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so at some point of level, when it comes 
to picking politicians and political parties, you're picking the lesser evil, whether that's the more progressive candidate out of the Democratic Party or the Democrat or the Republican or whatever your thing is, you're always going to be pick something who's going to be doing the least worse because we don't know how to find any of them that aren't ubiquitously terrible. So at that point, I'm saying I'm more willing to believe a poor person will spend that money in a way that is useful to them than a rich person will. And that breaks down in a very interesting way because when you give a rich person money, um, first off, they don't need it. And so they're going to spend it irresponsibly because everything past probably the first hundred or $200,000 they spend a year is spent irresponsibly. So other than um, Jeff Bezos, what would you say is an irresponsible use of their money, right? Because I know that it's easy to paint. Um, every mansion and every $200,000 car, every yacht, every gun, every second house, every winter home, every $300,000 car, every private island they bought versus... of poor people not having a computer, which at that level, how do you go to school? How do you do your homework if you don't have the public library? It's not going to be convenient. It's not going to be great. But at that that point, then we're saying, well, okay, you were born into a poor household. So you have to leave your house and go to the public library to go to work while Mr. McMansion works on his third computer in his fifth home. Why are we giving those people more money? They don't need it. Every dollar spent by a poor person, even if they buy a TV, is going to be objectively more happiness brought into this world than a rich person buying another summer home with their five million they just got back from another tax cut. Like when we look at how we should be spending our money, okay, oh, they bought a TV. Oh, you know, um, they have air conditioning. Oh my God, the poor people aren't sweating. Yeah, they're going to spend money weirdly. But again, even if every other poor person spent the money weirdly, they would probably more good would come out of that money being spent than some millionaire having a couple 10,000 more dollars to spend. Man, as much as I would love a governmental body that did you know everything that we wanted them to do, nothing more, nothing less, I really think that's calling on utopia. Etymologically, that literally means nowhere. It cannot exist by definition. <laughs> I think this is a little too idealistic and looking for perfection where it will not be found. I brought up a little bit earlier the fact that when you get the government more involved, that's going to involve more bureaucracy, more hands touching the money. And every time that those hands touch the money, and if a person's only job is for the money to pass through their hands, it is going to be reduced. I think this really brings up a question of efficiency, if anything else. I don't think that these large government programs are going to be the best way to aid people. I don't think it's going to be the best way to help people. I don't think it's going to be pulling people out of poverty and conditions that they find themselves in. If anything, um, um, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be taking money out of the pockets of people who are working and who are, you know, the hard-earned money and everything. You're going to be passing it through hands that don't need to be touching that money. That whole pile is going to be reduced of money that, that should not have been given to the government in the first place. And it's not going to make it to the people that need it. Josh, I know that's part of the argument that you're making. You want the money to get the people that need it, but I think there are better ways to do that, namely charity. Honestly, the whole system that we have, the whole nation, one of the things that was set up when the founding fathers set up the nation was um, the idea of, you know, tax-exempt organizations, specifically church historically. That was because they recognized that these organizations, because of their moral conviction and the mission that they had, the people were going to do better work than the government could possibly do for less money. And what that meant in reality is that that money is going to make it to the people who need it. You can't have that guarantee with government because you have uninvested. In a lot of cases, you have uninvested people that have no incentive to do the right thing. Now, that's not to say all government employees are that way. I know a lot of great people who work for the government who are honest and who want to do their job well. But like you've brought up multiple times, Josh, and I'm absolutely in agreement, we both know 
know that there are plenty of people in government who have no interest in doing the right thing. They could care less about me, you, and everyone else that's listening to this podcast. They are the elites and they want to have their elitist buddies all fixed up while we're down here suffering. I don't see how giving them more money, specifically the government, is going to guarantee that people that need help get the help they need. I think a better bet would be to rely on charities and for us to be able to keep more of our money and give out of, you know, moral obligation to help people. Okay, you're acknowledging the fact that we don't live in a utopia. You also have to acknowledge that for every charity that comes from a church that wants to help people, there's also some mega church somewhere that is buying jets and like it's by buying entire channels with all of the money that they get because they're tax exempt. Again, I still don't see the point of not trusting the government whose literal existence is to hopefully help people and instead trusting other entities that just sprung out of nowhere and trust that they will do a better job than the government. If I were to summarize what Josh had just said, it's basically the idea that uh, tax cuts are given and misused to the rich, but not to the poor. It's because the poor don't get tax cuts. The well, idea that even if the poor misuses them, um, they there's less harm incurred to society because they're yeah, the poor has a better ability to generate good for themselves than their bosses do. I think that there's a lot of kind of conflation and convenient attribution based off of uh, the the different classes. You're you're kind of through that argument in a sense taking the the unique of both instances and then saying here is Jeff Bezos who just spent trillions of dollars to go into space or however much he spent billions millions whatever an exorbitant amount of money to go into space nobody else has benefited versus if someone else gets a TV um, then that brings them some joy and so you're measuring the amount of joy that is brought to an individual and you're saying that because the poor have such a low standard of life then the computer that helps them go to education is better than the second house to the the millionaire and well, I, and a lot of poor people won't buy televisions and computers they'll buy food and pay rent and, and no millionaire will do that well i think that they have to do both i think that they have to pay for food to well, right eat. but no millionaire <laughs> needs government money to pay for food or rent right like, and they're not getting government money and i think that what's important to remember is that a tax cut is not the same as the direct handout. And so you're, you're, where I'm seeing a problem in this comparison is that the very, very poor who are getting the subsidies, whether it be through food stamps so that they can have food or some kind of subsidization for their rent, like, yes, those are things that are necessary, arguably even more so, and I agree with you this, than the mansion or the yacht because those are frivolous things. But the direct subsidy costs money. The tax credit or the tax cut is, is leaned against the deficit that they already came from. Therefore, it's it's kind of like when I get a tax return at the end of the year, the government's not giving me, however little it is for me right now, that much back, um, as in it's coming directly out of their pocket. It's returned to me because it was already my money to begin with. Like the way that the subsidies work is they say you have to meet X criterion in order or criteria, uh, presumably multiple things, in order for you to be subsidized or you have to re reach X crisis in order to be subsidized. So to kind of bring this back around, I would say that one is costing money, one is not. I think that I'd agree with you that like the lavish things are not essential to life. But if I'm going to allocate tax dollars, when we get down to the brass tax of how that money is allocated to help these people have a better quality of life, it's the government allocation that I'm picking at right now. I actually haven't even touched, you know, where do people spend the money themselves? Of course, it can be misused and I wouldn't want that regulated. But at the same time, allocating more funding doesn't give these people a better quality of life. 
I know you have a problem with where the government allocates this money, but at the same time, I feel like these allocations and in the case, again, you said that you don't, you haven't touched on where they spend their money in the first place. But I will say that in the case of like several subsidies, for example, food stamps, there's not a whole lot they can do with that except spend it on food. And so in that, in those very specific cases, I mean, yes, I would be in favor of giving them just straight up cash. But if you want to be a little more lenient with it, then in the case of food stamps, that works and that has been proven to work and that helps millions of people, many of whom are actually working too, which would indicate a failure of the system as a whole. Why would you need for some serious work in full time? Ryan, I think you bring up a really good point. And uh, I don't know, that was the first thought that came through my head. If the government proposes a tax break, if they decide to not take in as much money from a corporation, it's not that they're losing money because they didn't have the money to begin with in the first place. The money does not belong to the government. The money belongs to the business that produced that capital. You know, with that reasoning, I don't see how the government passing a tax break is going to be them losing money. If you're going to take that assumption that it's them losing money, then you're taking the assumption that that money that belongs to the business actually belongs to the government. I don't think we want to go down that path. I don't think we want to go down the path of, um, essentially, it's an argument for abolishing private property. I don't think that's a safe way to go. Another thing on the utility of tax breaks, I know like the first thing that comes to mind, we're all thinking of Amazon. We're thinking of you know the Walmart Corporation. We're thinking of all these really, really big companies. But a lot of what's lost is medium-sized to small companies. For every bit of tax break that happens with those companies, and I'm sure with the larger corporations as well, that doesn't just translate to CEOs getting another yacht. It doesn't just translate to another summer home. It translates to however many people getting salaried. It adds new people getting to work for those corporations. When you expand your business, what that really means is that you are hiring more people. You're able to provide people with a livelihood. You're able to provide people with work. Quite honestly, I think that is preferable to uh, just having that money funneled to the government and being given out in the form of handouts. I don't think that contributes anything to the economy. Whereas with a tax break, if you have a corporation able to hire more people to work and have meaningful work, if anything, that's going to provide people with work. That'll be more tax revenue from those people who are now gainfully employed. It's going to be purchasing power. That's also going to drive the economy forward. In all respects, I would say that is preferable to just hiking up taxes and allowing the government, again, wasteful bureaucracy, to have their hands all over this money that they really don't have much business dealing with because they're inefficient in most cases and tend to mishandle everything they do, as we've discussed here on the podcast. And I think it would be a good transition to switch over to the concept of Obamacare because Obamacare did a lot to damage the actual healthcare system because it made it to where you had a penalty and a fine if you weren't switching over to either their option or the preferred option that they deemed acceptable, so which limits your scope. They made it so that, yes, more people have access to healthcare, but what we often don't talk about is the quality of healthcare. So, what I want to transition here is to say that, yes, you see more things given and more accessible to these people, but that's not always a good thing. At least that's what I would claim is, yes, more people have more access to health care, but it's not good health care and it actually drags down more than it elevates those people. Because the government is not allocating in a way that improves those people's quality of life. They subtract. 15% of plans that were offered and were expansion plans that were previously able to be accessed by the general public were removed, which means you're removing those options and you're forcing people to take on the healthcare that the government has deemed is acceptable. You're literally removing options from people and saying you can't access this. And then you're subsidizing options that don't give people the care that they need. And that's why I'm against this is because I'm saying that you're not actually improving the quality of life that you're claiming to, to improve through this bill. You can 
throw whatever they want to at Obamacare. It's a poorer option in both the quantity that's available and the quality of care that's given to these people as even an option than what they could have had without it. And then you're penalizing people who are, let's say you're too poor to afford their option, then they taxed them so that they could pay for this for fewer people. That's why we don't need to depend on government uh, entities or corporate entities to help people because they don't. We agree. We've said the same thing. So we give the money directly to them and childcare credits. We make pre-K free and we don't make them pay for that anymore. We give them free healthcare and not make them buy insurance or do anything stupid like that because these giant organizations don't care about us. So we want government policies that target us and not to them. And that's why we don't want to depend on, oh, if we don't, if we lower our taxes, businesses will do more business and they'll pay their people more. We're just pushing the ball through so many hands and just hoping that these people will help people instead of saying, oh, I have all of the power in the world, literally. Why don't I just do it myself? And our government and our plans don't do that. That's why, you know, when we do find, even in the midst of the muck of all the other dumb things, probably in this infrastructure bill, universal pre-K, excellent, immediately benefits a lot of people. Child uh, care tax credit, excellent, immediately benefits a lot of people. We don't want to get caught up in relying on massive entities of vested financial interest in the current financial system. So we're asking the rule makers to write the rules. We're asking the benefactors to be the ones who judge what's fair. In, in concept, I would say, yes, you, you give this money directly. In theory, it can work. But the problem then is you're also assuming through this plan that there's something to go to or something to have. What we saw is that people were leaving private practice because it wasn't available. Therefore, there's no money in it. Therefore, the quality of care goes down. The wait times go up. There's no longer an option for people based off of what they can pay. It's based off of, well, you got here and you you sit in line or pre-K. We're assuming that there's teachers lined up to subsidize this. Last I heard, there was a teacher shortage, especially during and post-COVID going back in with the Delta variant. People don't want to teach this. So then my question is not, is the principle of this good? What I've questioned right now is is how does this function? Where do you get the money? Other than taxing it, because people tend to leave and find ways through those loopholes, like you mentioned. So where does the money come from when we can't tax it and we can't gather it? Tax me, man. Ta- you know, like, you know how it works. Like there's people here who are not going to leave. And again, I, I know that this might play into your argument of like not very rich people still getting screwed by the tax system. But there's people in this country who earn a lot of money and yet are not like super mega millionaires. If I could get it and I don't have kids, but if I could get all of those benefits that we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, the rebate on, on childcare, if, if we could get more benefits on healthcare and all of those things. And in churn, I would get taxed more than, yeah, I'd be all for it. And I feel some people will hopefully and eventually understand that we are paying for these things. Like you give money to the government to do things for you. And even if they're not for you, they eventually come back to you, not in, in terms of money. I again, I don't expect all of my money at the end of the year to come back to me because I know that's all that was paid to police officers and to fire people and to pave roads. And like, that's, that's where you get the money, just tax people. And hopefully, and I know we're 
don't live in a utopia, but what if you fix the tax loopholes? Yeah, we, we can always say, you know, oh, you know, there's a teacher shortage. Well, the community college system survived universal community college in Tennessee and has survived it in many other states. But just those existed. Because, like, well, right. But pre-K exists in every 50 state. And whether or not it's free doesn't necessarily mean people are going to pay for it. I don't think there's a truancy uh, clause in um, this bill of like where you're going to get truancy charges for not sending your kid through pre-K. It's still going to be on that. And if you want your kid to go to pre-K, you can do it now. And that's one of those things of, well, how does it play out? Well, let it play out. Okay, we make pre-Ks now free and the government's now paying all the bill for pre-K and there's not enough uh, pre-K centers. And so we ended up needing more pre-K teachers. So And buildings. And buildings. But all of that can be done fairly easily. But where's um, the money? I mean, the money is already there. The money is being paid for. The money is in the bill. The money is where the rest of the money is. But through taxing. Um, Yeah, through where where all the rest of the money is. Right, and I'm saying Um, that as you increase the aggressiveness of the tax, our tax levels go up. and, and, And everyone who is going to be hurt the most by these tax increases is not the billionaires. So, like, again, they've overshot. How? Because the billionaires leave. If they can, if if the people that we dislike in this scenario are the ones who have the yachts and, and all of these yep. other companies, they have the infrastructure themselves to leave. We can tax everyone's income if um, companies want to be dumb and, you know, they manufacture They won't stuff. tax income. But again, it's not like the whole economy is going to disappear out from under us because we go to a tax rate that we had to in the 70s. I wouldn't because say that it's going to disappear. We had, we've had taxes exorbitantly higher than we've had them before. Like we've had a top tax rate of 96% before in America. We had it all through 1910 to about 1960. We boomed and we grew and we had the biggest growth after World War II at a 96% tax rate on people making more than $10 million a year. But then we had the Trump administration cut all the taxes and we had the greatest growth we'd had in 40 years since then. Josh, I'm not really I'm not really sure if um, I would attribute the growth in our economy after World War II to the tax cuts that came after. I think it was the war. I mean, we mobilized the entire country to become a manufacturing powerhouse to destroy the Nazis and the axis of evil. I think that has a little bit more to do with economic growth and large tax increases on the wealthy. Actually, that brings up a pet peeve of mine when people say, you know, eat the rich, tax the mess out of Jeff Bezos and the Walmarts and everything. Just to throw this out here, net worth is a completely meaningless indicator, 100% meaningless, because it has nothing to do with your liquid assets. And that's the thing that has to be taxed. Unless you plan on taxing people's like actually going in and saying, ah, you have a house worth this much. We're going to take this much money out of your account. The person's money would run out very quickly, first off. But second off, Jeff Bezos does not have whatever his net worth says as available capital. That's tied up in, well, okay, I don't know the current thing, but that was tied up in Amazon at the time when he was their CEO. It wasn't just like he had a Scrooge McDuck vault of billions of dollars he could just jump into. It was actually the fact that he was the CEO. He was the chief oper- you know, chief operations and everything running the company, that indicated that the company was his, that he was, you know, every single bit of Amazon infrastructure, every single bit of the company's assets, all the things the company had access to that was responsible for employing thousands and thousands of people, people's jobs dependent on that quote unquote net worth. That's what that represents. It doesn't represent the amount of dollars that Jeff Bezos has access to. It represents the fact that he's in charge of that company. Just on that thing, that's just a pet peeve of mine when people try to say we can take, you know, however many billions of dollars from Jeff Bezos. That means 
means that the government would be usurping control of Amazon. That doesn't mean that they would be taking money out of his Scrooge McDuck vault. In reality, Jeff Bezos, if he were to liquidate his assets, what that would amount to is him completely tanking Amazon. Because the moment that he sells off the stock that that net worth is represented by, every single stock that is involved with Amazon would then begin to tank because he is dumping a large amount of um, stock onto the market, showing that there is a question on the valuation of Amazon. What that would do is that would trigger a catastrophic response that would lower the value of Amazon and that would cause how many, many thousands of people to probably lose their jobs. So it's not really a question of whether, unless you're really willing to argue that Amazon should be usurped by the government and become a government entity, which I don't think, um, first off, I think it'd be immoral, but second off, I don't think it would be a good thing in any way, shape, form, or fashion. I don't really think that taxing the mess out of the rich is, when people make that argument, I don't really think they understand what's going on and how the rich have their assets oriented. It's not that they have billions and billions of dollars in their back pocket. They just happen to have control of a company that is worth that, but that worth represents the livelihoods of thousands of people and the infrastructure and assets the company owns to do their business. Let's go back to the actual policy. I think we've gotten off on the tax tangent. With the expansion of the Obamacare Affordable Care Act, you're looking at allocating more money and a change of the system in order to make sure that these people have access to dental and vision. Access to dental and vision and healthcare in general is a good thing. I think that everybody should have access to it. The way that they're proposing this, which first of all is pretty opaque and we don't really know exactly how they're doing it, but the concept of expanding something that was failed and made the system worse than it already was, in my opinion, is a terrible idea. I don't think that just throwing money at something or granting something means that they improve it. And the disconnect between where these people are actually going to see a benefit versus where they're going to be like they were taxed before then, I think that's a bad thing. I I don't see this bill actually achieving what it wants to in a significant way or a way that betters the status quo. I mean, yeah, but you don't see any bill of anything the government ever does doing anything. But the core answer still is we have to do something with our government. We have to keep advancing our society. The answer is America as a declining life expectancy We have the least worker protections and benefits out of any industrialized country. We don't have any paternal leave. We don't have paid sick leave. And we have a ton of benefits that every other modern country enjoys. And their citizens have better quality of life, spend less time at work, love their countries and are doing great. And their governments are willing to invest directly in their citizens and in the care for their citizens. And so we need to use our government as an agency to, you know, as something to bring change and benefit about in our society, or we will stagnate at the hands of a billionaire space race. So I'm hearing two different things there, though, like change and and better. I think that this bill <laughs> clearly is proposing a lot of change. I just don't see the better portion of it. And, and my opinion on this would be stay at the status quo. I think that that gets twisted to say that I'm like, well, I'm sitting here from my privileged air conditioned area and saying the status quo is good enough. I'm not saying the status quo is good enough. I'm saying that the proposed bill to change the status quo makes it worse. And in the same way that we would when we were debating. In NPDA debate on the circuit, I would say that Congress needs to come up with something better than this that doesn't make the status quo worse for me to get behind it, or quite frankly, I think before anybody should get behind it. You're worsening this at every single level. We're we're worsening the quality of things as we're trying to expand them because we're not providing for that guaranteed ability to make it better. 
I know some people are not going to like what I'm about to say, but sometimes more money could be the solution to the problem. I feel like, and we know this already, that after a quote-unquote bipartisan dialogue during the Obama administration, that Obamacare was passed but heavily gutted thanks to the Republicans and the Democrats who had the majority, but also budged in for some reason. We know that the plan as it is right now is not what it was intended to be, and now we're allowed to criticize it as if this was the plan from the start. What I'm trying to say is that sometimes you needed that extra money to make the plan work in the first place. And I, and, I, and I feel like it's totally fair to criticize the way it is right now because we know how to fix it. And sadly, the way to fix it is just make it better. I don't, that sounds too obvious, but like the, the way the system was implemented in the first place is a lesser version of what was intended to be. So we have a fire and it sounds like from the what we know about this bill, you're trying to smother the fire with more firewood. I don't think just doing something, doing anything, while it might be like emotionally you know, fulfilling to say that we've done something, I don't think that's the way to go. We need to take a look at this based on the length of this bill and the cost that's projected of this bill, not to mention what the actual cost will be after government incompetence comes into play and the project goes on for decades longer than it should. I don't think it's the right response. I think we really need to step back. And if we're really interested in infrastructure and helping people, we need to do something responsible. We need to do something measured. We don't need to do something that is, quite frankly, irresponsible. I, I don't think that the answer is just to pass the first thing that comes across the desk, especially when that first thing is too long for anybody to have an actual substantive conversation about it. If anything, this represents what we've been talking about and some of the critiques that you brought up, Josh. The fact that the government, we can't really trust them to not serve the corporations they've been lobbied by. This thing is, uh, what do we say, 1,200 and something pages? How much do you think the corporations got their grubby fingers on this? And you know, this is assuming that corporations have have no positive influence on the nation. I would not grant that point, but just taking that as an assumption, this is the things that you believe in. Why would you be advocating for this when we don't even know what all's in it? There's no way that anyone could possibly know what all's in it because the corporations had a role in writing it. I don't think that just passing it just to do something is the right thing, especially when the future of the economy and the future of our, you know, I mean, our kids hang in the balance. For all this excess spending, the out of control money printing that's been going on over the past year and that this will surely trigger, it will do nothing but tank our economy in the long run and devalue the dollar. I don't want my kids to inherit that kind of country and that kind of economy. I want to be able to give them something better. I mean, there's no guarantee to make anything better, but the answer still comes down to then, so what? And it is so, you know, saying, okay, great. I can say, you know, the status quo and, you know, but you are saying that from a position of privilege because you, Ryan, aren't in risk of dying in a heat wave from lacking air conditioning. You're not at risk of dying because you can't afford your medicine. And people are going to die in America and probably have died while we recorded this podcast due to a lack of money and people people willing to do things for them. There are lives that will be saved by this infrastructure built, and I'm not sure my quality of America is worth sacrificing those people. That string, though, of thought relies on the idea, which is faulty, that problems that exist are directly caused by inaction or they are directly caused by the current status quo. We're seeing that, yes, there are people in places that live in a bad quality of life, and undoubtedly there are people who die from that. But that's not the same as saying that this is causing that or the inaction to pass this is causing that. If you pass this bill, sure, it might improve one person's quality of life. You're also going to take away the quality of life from other people. Like, that's that's just the way it's going to be. And I don't mean the billionaires. I'm saying that, like we saw with Obamacare, there were people who straddled the line between being able to afford and not being able to afford who had good quality of insurance. And we stripped that away from them and gave lots of people really nothing. And then we took that away. So I'm saying that it's a net loss and you can't predicate that net loss on 
the notion that well, we could improve one person's life a little bit. It is still worth noting that the net loss on Obamacare stems from compromising with Republicans and not doing just a full public option or doing um, universal health care. Those faults of Obamacare are compromises with conservatives and moderates that they wanted in the plan that they refused to allow a public option and they re- continue to refuse to allow universal health care. So we wouldn't have to have those faults in Obamacare if people weren't so set on having private insurance companies in the first place. The problem with the public option is that it is it requires government funding in order to exist, which means that you have to have that available, right? The, the very notion for those who might not know of a public option is that there is a government regulated, government subsidized healthcare option that people can opt into. And the problem- yeah, the government becomes your insurance company. The problem with that is that they can't promise control of quality and you can't control the amount of access that people have. Because when you have that, it is always the lowest tier because it can only have so much based off of what they have available to fund it. And the problem with that, having been included with Obamacare, we still got some variation of that. The opposition was that we don't see the quality there. We don't see that actually improving. Oh no, Joe Lieberman on the Senate floor, when he killed this, said that insurance companies will not be able to compete against the federal government and this will drive them out of business. His wife is an executive on a healthcare insurance company. And he said that on the Senate floor that the government, our, our businesses won't be able to compete. It was done so it didn't drive the insurance companies out of business. If the government wanted a higher quality care for the public option, they'd write it into law that you have to give them your premium care. And then what are you going to do? Oppose the federal government's law? No, they can control care. Your insurance company can't control the care either if the federal government can't. The public option died for the sake of private insurance companies' profit lines. And that is the only reason. Yeah, speaking of the Affordable Health Care Act, just to draw a few comparisons and parallels between it and this bill, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Nancy Pelosi that said to the Republicans, if you want to find out what's in this, you have to pass it in regard to the Affordable Care Act. That is the same degree of irresponsibility that is unacceptable that we're seeing with this human infrastructure bill. You have these gargantuan bills that are too long to debate on the Senate and the House floor. They're too long to actually read all the way through. And you have someone sitting in Congress saying that you have to pass this in order to find out what's in it. I don't necessarily think that the Republicans were at fault with not wanting to uh, just say, roll over and say, yeah, sure, whatever you want. I think there is a degree that compromise has to be a part of this nation. Otherwise, if un- ideas go unopposed, then we're going to end up with some, you know, we might end up with some good ideas. It'd definitely be more convenient. We'd have things move quicker, but we have no guarantee they'd move in a good direction. We have no guarantee that we wouldn't be moving quicker down the side of a cliff. Another parallel to draw, um, I think you'd mentioned, Josh, that the Affordable Care Act, you'd mentioned that the dude you were talking about, his wife was a healthcare exec, and he'd said from the floor that it, private insurance agencies wouldn't be able to compete with what the federal government is offering. I don't necessarily think that would indicate that the best thing is being offered so much as the government is mandating this uh, these things. This is a direct parallel to what we've seen with the unemployment benefits being offered throughout the COVID season. Very exorbitant payments being offered to people to the tune of, what, $600 per week on top of $300 normal benefits for unemployment at the height of COVID? $900 per week? I don't think um, companies are at fault for not being able to compete with that in some cases. It's just not sustainable. This isn't a reflection on those companies, I think it's a reflection more on the irresponsibility and short-sightedness of the government for offering such exorbitant and high benefits to people who aren't contributing anything to the economy. This has nothing to do with the worth of a person because a person's work and their net worth are not tied to their worth as individuals. This has absolutely nothing to do with that. This has to do with the real facts that if you don't produce anything, if you aren't contributing, if you aren't producing goods, then the money is going to dry up eventually. This isn't even so much about tax stuff as it is about not having goods available. 
So we see that parallel there. I think that directly parallels to what we saw with the afford or what we would see with a single payer system, that the government is the most convenient option, so to say, but they have no incentive to provide good health care, like Ryan had said. Single payer system, they are a, you know, a third party that's sitting outside of you, the person who needs the health care. Why in the world would they be incentivized to provide you with anything better than the absolute bare bones minimum? I really don't think that taking options out of the running, I don't think using the coercive power of the federal government to have a hyper competitive force exerted on some of these companies, I don't think that would so much drive down costs as it would cause them to run out of business or cause a large influx of people to be choosing the public option in such a way that it would be to the detriment of the medical field as a whole. There are definitely some problems with private insurance. I think there's a lot of conversation that can go in there. That's a much bigger talk. But I don't think just a de facto from the top saying the federal government is going to be your new insurance agent is going to be the way to fix those problems. I would disagree there, actually. I believe that the government can, cannot obviously compete on the same level playing field with private companies because they're not on the same level playing field. They would do it, I'm going to say it, they would do it better because they have all of this overreaching power that you're talking about. And I would say that's a good thing when you're talking about people's lives and taking care of them. I don't believe that the competition would be erased because you know the public option is so bad, but yet so overwhelming. It's because it would be forced to make better deals with the pharmaceutical companies and have a better quality of healthcare for everyone. But for that to work, they all have to be on board with it. And yes, I know I'm arguing against less choices, but in this case, you would have a better and a wider range of coverage as we've seen in the past with, and, and we've talked about it already in the show, that it's like other options that are publicly funded right now and people have no problem with it, like Medicare, uh, Medicaid, uh, like Medicaid, um, that are available, that we're subsidizing already for other subsidies of the population. We just need to extend it. And yeah, if some millionaire pharmaceuticals are going to break because of this, then, oh, well, I'm sorry, I guess. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with our hot takes. All right, for my hot take, I think I'll channel the collective ire of the group to reiterate a point I made earlier. Um, it's totally unacceptable that our Congress thinks that they can throw down a 2,702-page bill onto the floor, not read it. There's no chance anyone in that room has read the bill all the way through and expect to pass through a billions upon billions of dollars in an infrastructure bill. It is unacceptable that they think they can pass things through under the American people's noses without going through it themselves. And again, I think we could all agree in saying both chambers of Congress should be forced to read every page of whatever bill they want to bring forward from the floor before they can take a vote on it. I think transparency is the most, one of the things we are missing in our government today. Uh, well, no, that's not something I think. It's something that is an absolute fact. There is no transparency and it's absolutely disgusting. On that same note, I think there's a little bit of a troubling trend in people. <laughs> this is going to sound a little bit libertarian, so to speak, but people trust in the government. I really don't think a lot of people in government have our best interest in mind. Like we've brought up numerous examples, whether it be corporate lobbying, really impacting people's, uh, impacting our government and what they're passing through law, or whether it be the fact that this bill exists in its form, 2,702 pages. Um, like I just said, it's inexcusable. I don't think the government is going to be the answer to all our problems. They have certain purviews that they should be exclusively allowed to operate, such as you know military and national affairs type things. But when it comes to public welfare, um, like I mentioned earlier, I really think charity is the way to go. You have less people touching the money, so to speak. It's not compulsory and that the government isn't forcing you at gunpoint to give them your hard-earned money. And the people that are working it actually have a moral obligation and conviction to do the right thing, unlike the people in government. So I really think this whole thing, a lot of the fat, like we can agree that roads need to be fixed. We can agree that a lot of our infrastructure, actual infrastructure is outdated and needs some work. I think there's a place for that and a real bill that is 
cut down and sparse could be offered on the table to take care of some of those things. But a lot of the stuff that's going over and above, a lot of the thing that has slipped inside this bill, a lot of the things that have been offered by corporations who are certainly lobbying need to be cut because this is not what the American people need. They do not need the government intruding even more into their lives. They don't need people reaching their pockets, taking more of their money. They need to have their money to themselves so that they can use it to do what they see fit and what they see is right because the government has no place to tell you what is right and what is wrong. So again, on behalf of the whole group, I'm sure I can speak and say it is disgusting. So that's my hot take. Well, add on to the uh, legislative woes and add on to the, the fact that there are probably several hundred page sections of this bill that not only have the officials not read, they didn't write. And this happens more commonly at the state house level with lobbyist groups where they will write a bill and then they will deliver it to the Congress people they are bribing, call it lobbying them, whatever. And then that Congress person, that legislator will take that piece of item, will not modify it and will bring it into the legislative session. Did they read it? Who knows? They sure as well didn't write it. So why does it matter? And I think that's one of the larger sentiments I have to give you all a takeaway. I well, here's here here's the, the hot take about the legislator. I'll get uh, as a recent example as I was writing about in one of my papers. In China, they have elections. Now you only get to pick from the candidates that the um the the party selects for you. You only get to pick on who the Communist Party puts on the ballot for you. You know, it's a good thing in America. America, we have, you know, free and fair elections where you can vote for who you want, you know, just the Republican and Democratic Party where you only get to pick on the people that they pick for you. And, you know, those third party candidates that are always on the ballot, but, you know, they don't actually get to be on the ballot until they get 5% of the national vote. If they don't get that, they have to pay each and every state every year a decent change of money to stay on the ballot. So the government's not your friend. The government's the corporation's friend. And the corporations are less of your friend than the government because you have a friend or two in the government every now and again. From that, then when it comes to thinking about politics and thinking about development, it's more important to rely and trust and community and each other than in big structures around us, be it the government, be it the corporation. None of them want to save you. They only want to use you. And you need to start weeding out your elections by that and really digging into the people running for office and who's taking corporate money and how they act on Capitol Hill because superheroes aren't real. And for better or for worse, you need to be your own. All right. So my hot take is going to be, first and foremost, this bill fails to address the court issues. I think they raise a lot of great issues. I think they have a lot of good points of critique of what our system is lacking, but then they go ahead and they don't make any significant strides or in many instances, any strides to actually address them. They deliberately use opaque language. They deliberately hide the mechanisms by which these things will be executed. And they rely on current systems, which I think by and large, we've agreed have huge issues are broken in many instances and tend to not actually address what they want. The government has no desire or incentive to change the status quo because these people, as we've agreed and have mentioned, they are dependent on certain amounts of power. They write things specifically to benefit themselves. It's non-unique to the parties. And we do need to find ways to elevate the status and qualities of life for individuals. But this isn't it. This bill is not going to do that. I think that the money spent, uh, particularly um, as Josh mentioned, when we talk 
target direct individuals has minimal return and minimal impact, particularly through the mechanisms of bills like this or like the Affordable Care Act. I think what you need to do as a congressional member is show how a benefit is likely to happen. And as we've seen historically, they're not actually improving that. Showing that more people have health care or that more people are going to have access to an expansion of health care is not the same as showing that it's better than the status quo or even showing that it's a net benefit. In order for us to actually pass something that's going to be beneficial, I think that we are going to need to take a good hard look at how a lot of these things are processed, at how a lot of these things are executed, and then actually, like Austin mentioned, get people to read the bills. And a personal hot take here, I think that you need to have every single page of every single bill needs to be read word for word. I think that that would shorten the amount of things that are tacked onto a bill. I think it would increase transparency, and I think that it would hold people as a start more accountable. So one, one thing I want to take away from this entire episode is that we have been trying to argue like which one is the worst of both worlds, right? Like, would we rather have the greedy companies who are taking, you know, control of our lives through like their power? Or would we put our trust and our faith in the government and what they can do better or what they can do worse? And honestly, in and I've already said it, this is maybe the coldest take I've had so far is that I still side with the government in a way. I believe that in this case, we need to look at everyone and not only in what value they can bring by producing or working or whatever, but in their value as just being people who live in this country, not only citizens. Uh, we need to look at these people and, and everyone in, in this case, and but especially those who have the least amount of money and the amount of power in this country as people who still deserve, you know, healthcare that is good, good healthcare and not, you know, say, well, the public option doesn't work, so we're going to toss it away. It, they still, in a way, I believe, deserve the money from the government in those $300, $600, $900 a week, because it's good that they have money that they can put back into the economy. I feel like those things can be a world where all of these people can be helped by the government and a world where the economy still runs are not two different worlds. Really, they can be the same. And again, we just need to figure out the way to do it. But I don't think not passing this and then still expecting for the waiting for the next best thing is the way to go. All right. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Join us next time for more hot takes and information.